How many of you know that even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, the Lord is working? That is exactly why it was necessary for the children of Israel to celebrate the Passover. God had done mighty things for them in the past, and He would do mighty things for them in the future, but very often, in the midst of their moment, they wouldn't feel it. They wouldn't see it. So it is with us. Very often, in the midst of your moment, it doesn't feel like God is working. It doesn't seem like God is active. He may feel far off. He may feel impotent and not able to save, not able to fix your situation. And yet He's never not working. He is constantly being who He is. He is the way maker. He is a promise keeper. It is our privilege and our duty to worship Him. To celebrate the mighty deeds of our mighty God. His faithfulness throughout all generations. It is this very thing, celebrating who He is, the sacred celebrations that He has given us that help us to be able to remember in the midst of our moments that the same God who delivered in the past is able and faithful to deliver right now and throughout all our days. Before we begin, let's just start with a word of prayer. Father, we're about to open your holy book. Help us not to take that lightly. Whether we are reading from the New Testament or the Old Testament, the Gospels, the Law, the Prophets, the Wisdom books, this is your heart that you saw fit to reveal to us not to confuse us or give us some clever code, but that we might know you. This is what we long for, Father. We want to know you. We want to be changed by the knowing of you. So give us a hunger. Not just for preaching or singing or fellowship. Yes, for these things. But Father, give us a hunger for Your Word. Teach us to reject the teaching of any human that exalts itself above the knowledge of You, that exalts itself above the text of Your Word. Remind us that no preacher is divine. But Your Holy Spirit speaks to us through the writings of those that You have have inspired and called to pen these works. And even now, moving in our hearts, drawing us to repentance, opening our eyes and illumining Your work to us. Help us to see. And Lord, let us be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we will be in Romans, uh, I'm sorry, in Numbers 9, but before we go there, let's start with Romans 15. 
We're continuing in our In the Wilderness series, and today we look at this passage about remembering the future. Therefore, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says at the end of the book of Romans to put us in the right frame of mind. A better prepared preacher would have had the page already marked, but we ride together, so hopefully we find it. Romans chapter 15. We're looking just at verses 4 and 5. In the midst of what Paul is saying to the church about bearing with one another's burdens and and weaknesses and struggles, he says this, For everything that was written in the past, speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Turn to Numbers chapter 9. We go from the New Testament all the way back to the earliest part of the book and the Pentateuch, the five first books. And we see in the book of Numbers, if you're Less familiar with how to get around your Bible, it's the fourth book of the Bible. And as we are looking here, we are are joining this story after God has called apart from the nations a people for Himself. A people not seeking Him, but a people called by Him to seek Him. And He draws them out from the nations out of one man, Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham that through him, and specifically through his seed, all nations would be blessed. He would make a great nation out of him. He would make many nations out of him. And we see that historically true. But there's the seed. The serpent crusher, the Messiah, would come through Abraham through the Hebrews, through the Israelites, through the Jews. We know Him as Jesus the Christ. But having called this people apart uh, from the nations to be His, He allows them to settle in Egypt after a famine in the land of Canaan where they had settled. And He puts them here where they prosper. They prosper so much, they become so numerous that the the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, 400 years removed from, from their time of glory, now sees them as a threat. They've become enslaved. They are disrespected, disregarded, disenfranchised. They're fed up. They're unhappy, as slaves tend to be. But man, are they numerous. God sees fit to deliver them out of this bondage, and He calls a man also not seeking Him. A man whose steps He had foreordained, He had ordered them before one came to be. You know Him as Moses. He was the Israelite baby who had been... been, uh, surreptitiously placed into this 
this ark, this basket, to keep him from the drowning that Pharaoh had commanded for the firstborn sons of Israel. So while Pharaoh had the firstborn sons of Israel put to death, God protected Moses. And Moses ends up being raised in Pharaoh's household. He becomes, as the movie says, the prince of Egypt. Good movie, by the way. You should check it out. Moses later becomes an outcast in Egypt after killing an unjust slave driver. Now he's on the lamb. He's out in the wilderness for 40 years as a shepherd. He's lost his standing. He's lost his reputation. And God says, Moses, you're my guy. Moses goes back and approaches Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. This is my paraphrase. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And interestingly, the more encounter he has with the living God through Moses, the more he hears God's word, the harder his heart becomes. And God uses miraculous, powerful signs that only God could provide to break Pharaoh's heart and allow him to force him to let God's people go. Moses leads them out. Pharaoh changes his mind as his hard heart closes back in. And as his hard heart closes in on him, the seas of the Red Sea that had part, the waters of the Red Sea that had parted for the Israelites close in on Pharaoh and his army, and they're drowned. And God delivers his people. What an amazing story! This is not some little God carved out of wood sitting on the mantle that people bow and pray to. This is not some tribal deity that you pray to till the storm will stop and the crops will grow. This is the reality of the universe. The God who controls all things, who made all things, who sets all the rules. When He says, let my people go, brother, you're letting the people go. One way or another. Whether willingly or when he pries them out of your hand. And God commands his people as they're leaving Egypt. This is in, in Exodus uh, chapter 12, I think, if I have it right. Yeah, Exodus 12. God commands them then to commemorate this. He instructs them how in, in the, final, the final sign of the ten signs, the ten miraculous ways that God breaks them out of Egypt is the death of the firstborn. The angel of death passes through Egypt and just as Pharaoh slew the firstborn of Israel, God now, by His own angel, slays the firstborn of Egypt. But those who trust in Him... His people, who will obey His word, are instructed to sacrifice a lamb, and a perfect, unblemished lamb, and paint that blood over the doorposts of their houses. And when they do, death will pass them over. This foreshadows what will happen when Messiah comes, the perfect lamb, and sheds His blood for us. That those who are covered by His blood 
would have death pass them over and be given eternal life in Christ. And he tells them, as you go now, you've been delivered, all of these things have have happened. From now on, every year you are to commemorate this through this Passover celebration. And he tells them when and how and gives them the specifics so that they will do it according to his command as he designed. In this way, they are to remember the mighty deeds of their God and retell that story to their children throughout the generations so that there will never be a time when they will forget or their children will not know the wondrous works of their faithful God. How does this play into what we're looking at today? A year after these events, they've been sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai. They they escape from Egypt. They're traveling to the promised land. They finally are, are getting close to getting there. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai where God has given them the law. That's the book of of uh, Leviticus primarily. He's given them his law. In other words, he's revealed his heart and his will and his character so that his people can reflect the reality of who he is. Separate from the nations, different from the rest of the world, a weird-looking, peculiar people. In case you thought this was a complimentary thing. So that they would not look like everybody else. They would not act like everybody else. Their morality would not be like everyone else. Because their entire frame of reference is centered on Him. Now, in the book of Numbers, they are about to embark into the promised land. They're going to travel and encounter some things along the way. And they're going to run into some difficulties outside but mostly they're going to run into difficulties in their own hearts and that will be the bulk of what we see in the book of numbers but now here having organized the camp the 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 great mass of the nation of israel somewhere around two million two and a half million people if you can picture that gathered and traveling That by itself seems like a logistical miracle, if nothing else. I don't even think UPS could handle that. But he he orders them around the tabernacle. In other words, God, as he promised, dwells in the midst of his people. And everything about their lives, every aspect of their lives is focused on him. He calls apart a certain tribe, the Levites, and says, these are those that will take the place of the firstborn that I have redeemed. The firstborn of all Israel are mine. I redeemed them when I delivered you out of Egypt and slew the firstborn of Egypt. But the firstborn of every Israelite woman is mine. But I'm going to trade you, and I'm going to take the tribe of Levi in their place. And the Levites will do my holy work in the tabernacle. And of the Levites, Aaron's family, Aaron and his descendants, will be my priests. And they will do the holy work of worship. The Levites will handle the holy things, but only Aaron's family can be the priests. 
And now, as all of this is put in place and the tabernacle has been set up and they're about to leave Sinai to head into the promised land and conquest, they're going to get through several, uh, several places along the way. And interestingly, when we get there, you'll see it just kind of rolls through them. It's, a, it's just like this quick zoom. It doesn't happen quickly. But the point is getting to the promised land. But before they can leave, God says, take the Passover. Celebrate, celebrate the Passover as I have told you. It's a, a year since the first one. So this is the second Passover ever celebrated. And that's where we find ourselves in Numbers 9. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Starting with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. He said, have the Israelites celebrate the Passover at the appointed time. Celebrate it at the appointed time at twilight on the 14th day of this month in accordance with all its rules and regulations. So Moses told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover, and they did so in the desert of Sinai at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. But some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. So they came to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, we have become unclean because of a dead body. But why should we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? Moses answered them, Wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, When any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, they are still to celebrate the Lord's Passover but they are to do it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must not leave any of it till morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. But if anyone who is ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate the Passover, they must be cut off from their people for not presenting the Lord's offering at the appointed time. They will bear the consequences of their sin. A foreigner residing among you is also to celebrate the Lord's Passover in, a, in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for both the foreigner and the native-born. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. As we encounter this text today our core reality is pretty simple you have it in front of you celebrating what god has done is essential to trusting what he will do celebrating what god has done is essential to trusting what he will do in other words the more keenly we are aware of what god has done in the past the more fully we are able to trust what he will do in the future does that make sense Everybody grasping what we're talking about here? They're to celebrate this Passover. Not because God wants them to be stuck in the past, but because the past is the foundation for the future. If you're going to have faith in God, you need to know the character of God. 
You need to know that He is faithful. You need to know that He is powerful, that He is able to deliver, and that He is willing to deliver. If not, you will be consumed by your doubts. But the better you know Him, the more it's drilled into your heart through the renewing of your mind so that the Holy Spirit then can transform you from within, the more keenly aware of who He is and what He has done in the past you become, the more fully you are able to put it all in His hands. Lord, You you created me. Before I was ever born, You knew me. And even now, the, the great, wonderful, and terrifying thing is that I cannot escape your presence. I am never not with you. So I am never out of your care. And yet, at the same time, I can't hide from you my sin, my selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, my anger, my gossip, my deceit. I can't hide these. I might hide them from everybody else. The FBI might not find out. The IRS might not know. But you know, and I can't escape, and it's terrifying. And yet, I'm also never abandoned by you. You are always with me. Therefore, when I'm on your side, there is nothing that can ever touch me, nothing that can ever harm me. You are my rock, my hiding place. This is why God commands them to celebrate the Passover. We'll see that as we develop this today. God's past faithfulness is the reason we can trust His present and future faithfulness. It's the evidence that our faith is indeed reasonable and not simply wishful thinking or some sort of fairy tale. God has never called us to a blind faith. Put that out of your mind. That is a caricature that the devil loves for us to have. That I just need to close my eyes and jump and just, you know, have this this foolish kind of faith. That's not the biblical picture. What God is saying is, I'm God. It's not blind. Look around you. You already know I'm here. You got to talk yourself into being an atheist. You have to convince yourself that the ordered universe just happened to stumble into itself. It is absolutely, philosophically, nonsense. There's no logical leg to stand on. Your heart already knows that. You don't have to spend a lot of time trying to argue with those who don't believe because it's almost never. And I'm only saying almost just in case I'm missing something. It is, it is almost never an issue of information. It's a matter of the heart. The will. Not so much the intellect. Before I go off into apologetics and the, the reason that we should be able to have an intellectual conversation and defend the faith, I don't want to spend time on that today. Let's press forward. God has not called us to a blind faith. He has called us to a reasonable and thinking faith. In Hebrews 11.1 we are told in the ESV, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
I like the way it's rendered in the New American Standard Bible. Now, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. I believe the old NIV, heaven's preferred translation, renders that the evidence of things not seen. This is not a picture of blind faith. Rather, it is an earned trust established by the Lord's demonstrated power and proven faithfulness. This is the reason that we believe. Not because our parents told us we ought to, because good little boys and girls believe in Jesus. Not because we go to a church that has a particular set of religious rules and we have to adhere to those, but because God is And He has proven Himself. He has demonstrated both His power and His heart. Look to the history. It is the evidence. It is necessary then that we celebrate what God has done so that we are able to trust what He will do. How do we have faith in the midst of our difficulties. Well, that's going to be something that plays out in the hearts of Israel. In fact, we're going to see in very short order, just coming up here in a couple of weeks, we'll be getting to the place where they are faced with whether they should receive God's blessings with humble gratitude, trusting Him to know what's best for them, or whether their own preferences are more important. Shortly after that, God's going to bring them right to the brink of everything that He's promised them. Everything they've been waiting for. The land of milk and honey. And it's going to be better than they ever imagined. But there are going to be obstacles. Adversaries. Giant adversaries. And they're going to have to decide, is God big enough to do what He promised Or should I trust my own understanding? We're faced with that decision every single day. Whether you're talking about the the fears and anxiety that plague our society, so many of us overwhelmed with the what-ifs of life, or whether you're facing temptation to do that which you know is wrong, to be just a little dishonest to engage in in that escapism that finds itself in pursuit of illicit relationships or substances to to alter your mind all of these things are not trusting god i can say here i'm going to do what god says or you know the world around me is saying something else maybe we need to evolve our faith Maybe the Bible is kind of a living document and God didn't really mean for it to say this for all time. You know, we just kind of take it as suggestions. This is exactly the opposite of everything that the Lord has presented to us in the past and recorded for us in His Word. Therefore, when we rehearse the deeds of the past, when we go through and we recount what God has done, what He has demanded, 
the provision that He makes when we fail, the consequences of rejecting His way, all of these things, it's for our instruction that we might be encouraged in His faithfulness to be able to trust Him as we, whatever it is that we're doing, whenever we're facing any difficulty, any hardship, the unknown things, we can trust into His hands because He has proven Himself faithful. That's why Israel, before they go out, God says, here, do this. I've already commanded this. That's one of the things that we should be asking, by the way, when we're reading this text. If God's already laid out the Passover for us in Exodus, and He's talked about it again in Leviticus, why is He sticking it in here? What's the point? The point is that they need to be reminded, even as we do, of what God has done so that they can rely on that in what they're about to face. We need to know who He is, who we are, and how these things fit together. All right, let's fill in some blanks here. Notice this. The Lord's people must celebrate His faithful deeds. The Lord's people must celebrate His faithful deeds. Look at the beginning of chapter 9. The Lord spoke to Moses in the, ba- in the, in the desert. I don't know why I almost said the basket. It's not the basket of Sinai. I'm sure there was a basket. But The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. This, we see this transition here we're breaking from where we were in the setting up of uh, of the lamps in the tabernacle and in the setting apart of the levi's and now there's a transition the lord spoke to moses and and this is what he says in verse 2 have the israelites celebrate the passover at the appointed time notice this is a command this is what you are to do and there is an appointed time you are to do it a particular way at a particular time Verse 3, celebrated at the appointed time at twilight on the 14th day of this month in accordance with all its rules and regulations. That will become important in a little bit. So Moses told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover, and they did so in the desert of Sinai at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord's people must celebrate His faithful deeds. Notice this. Celebrating God's history of faithfulness is not optional. Celebrating God's history of faithfulness is not optional. The Lord told His people to celebrate Passover, and they did. Why? Because God said so. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it? When God says do it, just a crazy thought, do it. Oh, but I don't know if that makes sense. I don't really understand why. Man, you don't have to understand why. Daddy said do it, do it. That was something that was beaten into me a lot as a child, right? You can talk about why later on, but when I say do this, you do it. And we'll figure out understanding later, but in the moment, obey. God does tell us why. That's why I'm able to stand here and talk to you about it today. I'll make this stuff up. I got a good book. But God said it, so they did it. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Celebrating God's history of faithfulness is not optional. He told them to do it. They did. They celebrated according to His command in order to remember and retell what the Lord had done for them before. That's the nature of Passover. And as they do this, 
The point is, when your children ask, why are we doing this? Why is this night different than all other nights? You can tell them what God did for His people in delivering them out of bondage in Egypt. And we can make those connections for the next generation and the next and the next. And as we do, it affirms that reality in our heart and it plants the stakes down strong and deep so that when the storms blow, they can't blow down the tabernacle that is established in our hearts because it's been driven in through these sacred ceremonies. The ceremony isn't the point. What it remembers and celebrates is. God was not silent about it. It wasn't something they just decided to add to the church calendar. It was commanded by God because it was needed for their understanding of who He is. Celebrating God's history of faithfulness is not optional. Notice this principle we draw from it. The Lord's people celebrate the past as the foundation for the future. The Lord's people celebrate the past as the foundation for the future. So the Lord's people must celebrate His faithful deeds because He commands it, but also because we need it. He commands it because it is the foundation for what we will know of Him. Remembering and retelling what the Lord has done for us is not merely some nice religious thing we do. The faith of the Lord's people rests on His proven faithfulness. His history is the evidence that makes our faith reasonable. The Lord's people celebrate the past as the foundation for the future. Well, as much as the Lord's people must celebrate His faithful deeds, notice also the second part. The Lord's people long to celebrate Him faithfully. The Lord's people long to celebrate Him faithfully. Now there are some people here, as we saw, who wanted to celebrate but could not. But the Lord made provision for them. Notice in uh, verse 6, But some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. If you've been with us, we've seen that theme come up. That those who are in contact with a dead body, have, have dealt with death in this way, must be outside the camp and washed and made clean and then returned. So now they have this appointed time to be able to celebrate the Lord's Passover, but they can't do it. And they're stressed about this. Why are they stressed? Because they long to be able to celebrate God with their people. The people of God gathered together. It is important. And it is important to the heart of those who love the Lord. If you love the Lord, don't miss this now, because this is I'm jumping off script here, and I want to make sure that you get it. If you love the Lord, you love the Lord's people. Somebody say amen. amen. And if you love the Lord and you love the Lord's people, you will love to gather with the Lord's people to celebrate the Lord. Amen? amen. This is how it works. This is why your Sunday morning gathering is not important because you've got some raving maniac up here yelling at you for an hour. It's important because you're gathering with the people of God to celebrate the goodness of God together. And if we love the Lord, we long for that. We hunger for it. If we're deprioritizing Sunday morning, 
Let me say this very slowly. If we're deprioritizing Sunday morning, gathering with the Lord's people at the appointed time, which has been the appointed time throughout the history of the church, established in the New Testament, then we need to examine our hearts. Why in the world would anything become more important to people who love the Lord than gathering together with other people who love the Lord to celebrate your love for the Lord? This is a sacred time. And if you can't be here, be somewhere. If you're on vacation, that's great. I love it. Find a church on Sunday morning on your vacation. Wait, that's crazy. Is it? What would you rather be doing? Chilling with a cup of coffee, watching the sunrise? You're not going to a sunrise service. Let's be, not be crazy. People don't do that these days. You've already had your breakfast. You've already slept in, and you could still make it to church. Prioritize gathering with God's people at the appointed time to do God's thing, God's way. Find a church that teaches the Scriptures. And if you're here at real life, I think you found it. But if this isn't the place, get someplace where you can get connected where it matters enough to you that other things do not become a higher priority. Okay, you want to jump off that and come back to the, what we're dealing with in the text. The Lord's people long to celebrate Him faithfully. All right, these folks, are, they're, they're not able to, but they want to, right? So they come to Moses. And Moses does in, in verse 8 what every good man of God ought to do. Those who lead in the name of the Lord ought to have this perspective. So, Lord, uh, Moses, we, what's the deal? We want to be able to celebrate with God's people, but we got this issue. And Moses says so wisely, wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. Generally speaking, this is a, this is a, a, a proverbial principle, not, a, uh, not an eternal command. But generally speaking, a rushed decision is a bad decision. Moses doesn't jump to immediately deal with the urgency of putting out this fire. He says, wait, let me see what God wants. They don't need Moses' wisdom. They need God's wisdom. You don't need a preacher's personality or a human wisdom, what you need, what I need, what we all need, is men that are faithful to speak God's Word. Surround yourself with men and women who will build you up, not in something that makes you feel good, that sparks joy, or makes you, uh, you know, inflate your self-esteem so that you're inspired Find people who love you enough to speak truth. Truth from the Word of God. Not truth as they see it from the book of First Opinions. The Lord's people long to celebrate Him faithfully. These who want to are not able to, but the Lord made provision for them. Disrupted fellowship with the Lord is not beyond His reach. 
So their uncleanness due to a dead body disrupts their fellowship with God and His people. But God makes a provision for them. Notice this. Those who sought the Lord found grace, but not without holiness. Those who sought the Lord found grace, but not without holiness. They, they wanted to celebrate. Now, based on the question, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not going to try to pretend that I am, but just based on the consistent translation of this into the English, it sounds like they maybe don't even quite get it. Why can't we just do this, right? But the holiness of God is too important for Him to just let it go. When God gives a command, He doesn't just make an exception. Well, yeah, that's good most of the time, but today we're just going to you know, give you a pass on that. That's not how it works. He gives grace, not exceptions. He gives grace to them to be able to do what they need to do, to celebrate God in the Passover. But they're to wait until the following month. And then to do it according to all the law and regulations that have been given. God doesn't sacrifice His holiness or His expectations when He gives the grace. The Lord's provision did not disregard His personhood. It did not disregard His holiness or His holy standards. His provision is both gracious and holy. Jesus, our provision from God, came to live as a man, but He is the fullness of grace and truth. So often, especially these days with social media, we get these caricatures of who Jesus is. And it's interesting to me that, you know, a number of years ago there was this big push for the, the quest for the historical Jesus, which was anything but the historical Jesus. It was basically refuting any history that was recorded about Jesus to come up with a new version of Jesus that we could call historical. That removes miracles, that removes the testimony of those who were there so that Jesus fits our particular bent. But when we look at the Scripture and when we see what those who were eyewitnesses to Him, who walked with Him, said about Him, what we see is not someone like John the Baptist who's just you know, prophetically railing against, uh, against immorality. That's a right and good thing. But that was John's calling. Not someone who just says, hey man, love is love, we want to love everybody and everybody should just be welcome, it's all good. Not that either. Because that's a lie. Love doesn't lie. Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. The grace of God given to undeserving sinners, but not at the expense of God's holiness. This is why He came to live and die as a man, perfectly fulfilling the law to die in our place. God could not just say, hey, humans, I, I, I like you all a lot. I made you in my image. You really messed up, uh, but it's cool. Um, I'm just going to let everybody into heaven because I want to be your bro. I want to be your your bro God, your your happy God. That's not how holiness works. Darkness and light cannot coexist. God cannot have sin in His presence. And so He demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, He sent His one and only Son to die in our place. 
so that God could remain just in that wickedness receives its due punishment and also in His grace and mercy be the one who justifies so that you and I don't get what we deserve. We get what Christ deserves because He took what we deserve. This is the grace and holiness of God. Here in this picture in Numbers, we see God's people who love Him, who belong to Him, wanting to celebrate together with, uh, with the family of God and to do so faithfully. But the disruption of fellowship needs a provision, and God makes that provision for them. They find grace, but not at the expense of holiness. Notice this principle we draw out of what happens. When we love the Lord, we hate disrupted fellowship. When we love the Lord, we hate disrupted fellowship. Notice, these guys don't just say, oh, well, you know, I guess that's it. We don't get to celebrate. We'll try again next year. No, they're bothered by it. Their, their hearts are burdened. They're troubled. Why don't, why don't we get to celebrate God? We long to, to tell our children about His, His mighty deeds in the past. And, and they can remember it. It was just last year that they went through all this. But I don't want my kids to grow up not knowing how great God is. I don't want to miss this opportunity to gather with His people, to gather with my family, to bring the sacrifice. When we love the Lord, we hate disrupted fellowship. David in Psalm 51 talks about that very thing. He talks about it elsewhere. Psalm 32 comes to mind. But in Psalm 51, this is a prayer that David prays in confession of sin at the darkest, lowest point of his life. The man who is a man after God's own heart, the leader of Israel, the one who is, in, in that sense, the image of God represented to the people. He's the father of the nation. And David is caught in public scandal and sin. And he's brokenhearted not just because he was caught in the sin, although it wasn't until after he was caught that he repented. That's a principle we need to bear in mind. But when God confronted David with his sin through the prophet. He was heartbroken because he sinned against God. So not only is he caught in his sin, but David gives us Psalm 51, a very personal and private kind of prayer, confessing publicly his sin to be used in public worship. How would you like your sin to be sung about every week when we get together? those darkest moments of your life, the thing that you're most ashamed of in your entire existence, to have it put up on the screen for people to, to recite. He does that by the Holy Spirit's guidance so that the people of Israel and the church today can learn and humble ourselves. 
But in verse 11 of Psalm 51, having confessed his sins, David cries out to the Lord, cast me not away from your presence. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He is overwhelmingly distraught because his sin has disrupted his fellowship with his Lord. When we love the Lord, we hate disrupted fellowship. We're not going to waste any time in repenting. Now listen, if you think that being a Christian means you're not going to sin, you must not have been a Christian very long. Every single one of us will have disrupted fellowship as we fall on our faces and we fail in our walk. If we love the Lord, we get up. And immediately, as soon as we can, when it's brought to our minds, not because we're so good that we catch it ourselves, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But when the Holy Spirit brings it to mind, or someone else brings it to mind, in the humility of that, even the humiliation of that, we say, i got to come to God. It's not I messed up. I don't want daddy to find out. It's I'm messed up. I got to run to daddy. I got to go to him. I got to get this right. When we love the Lord, we hate dis disrupted fellowship. God's, the Lord's people long to celebrate him faithfully. Last point we want to see here. The Lord's people must celebrate his faithfulness properly. The Lord's people must celebrate his faithfulness properly. Notice this first part. This is what happens for them here in Numbers. The prescribed celebration of God's deliverance communicated God's steadfast love for His people and His ability to keep them. Alright, that's a long sentence. Let me read it again. This prescribed celebration of God's deliverance communicated God's steadfast love for His people and His ability to keep them. He commands them to do this, to do it according to all the rules and regulations that he had given. It was important that they do it right, because in, in doing this and celebrating this properly, there is an echo here of what we saw at the end of chapter 6. The Passover echoed the prayer of the Aaronic blessing. At the end of chapter 6, you may, may remember that. The Lord says, bless the people in this way. And they're to pray over them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace, shalom. And in this way, you'll put my name on the people. The Passover echoes that very prayer. This is the cry that God would look upon us favorably and bless us. That He would keep and preserve and protect us. That He would turn His face, or that He would shine His face on us so that we may, may bask in the glory of His grace. 
that he would turn his face toward us in intimacy, that we might have peace with him in a wholeness and harmony of living without disrupted fellowship. And this is pictured for them in the Passover. It echoes that. God was able and pleased to do for them again what He had already done. As He delivered them from Egypt, He protected them from Pharaoh. He kept them. He blessed them. He gave them His own presence. Demonstrated His goodness toward them. He even blessed them financially. He put it in the hearts of the Egyptians as the Israelites were leaving for them to just give them their stuff. Now that's kind of a prosperity teaching if you ask me. As he sends them out. and Here, take my gold, take my silver. That's what they use for their offerings here. How did slaves get all this stuff? Because God blessed them. And He kept them. And He made His face to shine upon them in giving them the law and being gracious to them in making provision for them. He set them apart as His own people. And He gave them the law, the system of sacrifices, so that they could live with a clean conscience before Him. And He turns His face toward them, making them His special possession. He says, I've separated you. I've called you out that you should be not like everybody else, but holy unto me, that you should be mine. And he made peace, reconciliation with them. This prescribed celebration of God's deliverance communicated God's steadfast love for his people and his ability to keep them. The Lord had blessed them and kept them as he delivered them from their bondage in a foreign place. The Lord had graciously given them what they did not deserve and caused the light of His glory to shine on them. He had turned His face toward them in intimate affection and His hand had brought them peace and they were about to need to trust Him to do all that again. You'll have to come back for the rest of the story. Last thing for you to write down here. The celebration of God's faithfulness is too important to neglect or get wrong. The celebration of God's faithfulness is too important to neglect or to get wrong. The Israelites needed not only to celebrate God's faithfulness, but also to do it properly. Because getting the commemoration wrong would get the picture of God wrong. The way we worship and celebrate the Lord both reflects and drives the way we think about Him and about ourselves. It instills and informs our faith. This is why the Lord instructs His people about how to approach Him. We don't get to come to God on our terms. We come on His. He instructs His people about how to pray. He instructs His people about how to gather in worship. It is why Jesus gave us the ordinance of communion, the remembrance celebration that we'll celebrate together next week. So that we could properly remember and celebrate what He has done for us. It is instructive to our hearts and to others to remember and retell the Gospel story through the Lord's Supper. The Gospels record it for us for the sake of time. I won't turn there, but you have references in your program. You can look that up for your homework. In 1 Corinthians 11, 
Paul confronts the Corinthian church because they're doing it wrong. This is important for us to catch because it's not just about having the sacred celebration. It's not about going through the religious ritual. They have it, but their hearts aren't right, and that's reflected in how they do it. And because their hearts aren't right, so they're doing it wrong, it's driving in them a picture of God and communicating to others a picture of God that is distorted and blasphemous. So they're coming to the Lord's table selfishly, and they're enjoying it, and they're having fun. For them, it was coupled with a love feast, And what ends up happening is they're loading up their plates while somebody else is going hungry. And he condemns them for it. That they should never take this with the wrong heart. They should never celebrate the Lord lightly. He even goes so far as to say that's why some of them were sick and even dying. God will not tolerate celebrations of Him that distort the picture of who He is. Turn, if you would, back to Romans. We were in Romans earlier, so hopefully you can find it easily. When you get to Romans, you're going to look for chapter 5. This is the last scripture I'm going to read with you today. While you're looking for it, I will assign you some homework for next time as we are going through the book of Numbers, hopefully Uh, many of you, maybe even all of you, I don't want to be that optimistic, but uh, hopefully you've been doing your homework and you've been reading and rereading through the book of Numbers. I want to challenge you as you do that to take a look at Psalm 78. Read through Psalm 78 as you do it and view Numbers afresh in light of that psalm. Hopefully that's given you time to get to Romans chapter 5. Look for verse 8. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. Why does all this matter? Why is it important for God's people to celebrate His faithfulness properly? It's a, it is how we get a proper picture of who He is and who we are. And if we get it wrong, we distort that picture. That's blasphemy. But getting it right and celebrating faithfully and properly strengthens our faith as we recall to mind what God has done in the past. It gives us a foundation for how we can believe going forward into the future. Notice what he says in verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, right? we were sinners, we were dead in our sins, and by His grace He sets us right, Having now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, remember He demonstrated His own love for us by sending His Son to die for us while we were still sinners, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Right? So, If He did this for us, how could we possibly think He's going to abandon us with whatever we're facing now? Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we we have now received reconciliation. Flip the page, if you would, to chapter 8. We'll wrap our reading with 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It is celebrating the past that gives us a foundation to trust God in the future. The Israelites needed to celebrate the history of God's faithfulness to instill and inform their faith in His ongoing faithfulness. It's what He did in the past that allows them to trust in what He will do in the future. They needed to see His power working in the past to strengthen their trust that He was able to make a way for them now, no matter what circumstance they might face. Passover served to focus their attention on the Lord, His mighty deeds, His goodness, rather than on the problems around them or the what-ifs ahead of them. We need the same thing. What circumstances are you facing today? What stresses you or causes you fear and anxiety? What makes you worried or angry? What indwelling sin leaves you paralyzed with guilt? These things tend to consume our thoughts and steal our focus. Lift your gaze. Look to Christ. Celebrate the reality of who He is and what He has done on our behalf. The more we fix our eyes on the Lord, the less power, stress, anxiety, anger, or guilt have over our hearts and minds. Celebrating the history of God's faithfulness to His people is less a matter of looking back than of looking up. Look up. Christian, look up. Look at the evidence of God's faithfulness, His mighty deeds of the past, and celebrate His greatness. The more time and energy we spend focusing on Him, the less we spend on the things of earth, and the less power the things of earth have over us. Sacred ceremonies are given to increase our humility, gratitude, and faith by reminding us of how great our God is by the evidence of His past actions. The more keenly we are aware of what God has done, the more fully we are able to trust what He will do. Celebrating what God has done is essential to trusting what He will do. When we, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds His hands have made, when we think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, our burdens gladly bearing, to take away our sin, then no power of hell, no suffocating circumstance can keep our souls from singing, my God, how great Thou art. Let's pray. Father, You are great. You are greater than our circumstances. You are greater than our fears. You are greater than our sin. Teach us not to focus on these things, but to fix our eyes forever on the Christ to set our minds on things above. Not to live in the past, but to learn from the past. To see your history of faithfulness and to rest in the knowledge that you are forever faithful. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.